This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Leadership in Action on Business Radio. Welcome to Leadership in Action on SiriusXM Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Ann Greenhall, Deputy Executive Director of the Ann and John McNulty Leadership Program at the Wharton School. And I'm here on Zoom with my good friends and colleagues, Jeff Klein and Mike Yusin. Jeff and Mike, how are you today? Doing great, living the dream. This uh, will shock you, but I'm doing better than Mike. I knew it. <laughs> I was waiting. <laughs> yeah, Jeff, that is a shock. <laughs> <laughs> well, Mike and Jeff, uh, I'm really delighted to say that we have a, uh, I'm going to say a little bit of an unusual show. We try on Leadership in Action to have a wide range of guests from different industries. And we also take the view that leadership is an act an act of making a difference no matter where you are in the hierarchy. But today we have a very special guest from the wine industry. And since he is right here in our, um, in our virtual audience, I'm going to welcome him to the show. So I'm so pleased to say that today we have Judd Wallenbrock. Judd, President and CEO of C. Mondavi and Family. Judd, welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much, Ann and Mike and uh, Jeff. And Mike, I have to tell you, you stole my line. I use uh, living the dream all the time. Okay. <laughs> we're in the same club. That's good. So, Jed, yeah. we're, we're really delighted to have you on the show. And I can't resist uh, but ask you, how did you get into the wine industry? Yeah, it's a... Uh, um, it's the wine industry very often is a, is an industry of passion. Uh, it's not something that you, uh, a lot of people don't really aspire to get into it. It's a lifestyle type of industry, but I will tell you quite honestly, I got into it uh, very, very young. Um, my first trip to the wine industry uh, or to the wine country uh, was, I was 16 years old in 1974. Uh, I was the co-driver with my older brother who was sort of my, I call him my mentor, but sometimes I call him my pusher. And, uh, uh, and uh, he was into wine when he was 20, he's 12 years older than I am. And, and frankly, uh, at 16 in 1974, I got bit by the bug and uh, uh, had a sort of a subconscious desire that I'd get involved in the wine industry. And subsequently I got out of undergraduate and, uh, and started my, my steps into the career in the wine industry. So, Jed, was this a road trip of sorts that you took with your older brother? Yeah, I am. Uh, we're, we're from Southern California originally. And uh, and so Northern California is, you know, it's a big state, you may recall. Yes. And uh, so it's about a six or seven hour drive from where we lived. And uh, uh, he was into wine. He was taking wine classes. And uh, since I could help drive, we just and I was a baseball player. He was my baseball coach. I, I was fortunate enough to play. Mm college ball at UCLA. So we sort of talked baseball and then got into wine and, you know, one thing led to another and that's how this all happened. I was basically 16 years old. I was the co-driver helped. I relieved him. <laughs> the reliever. All right. Maybe I know you have a degree in agribusiness. Was that at UCLA or, or beyond? 
No, it was a little bit different. So uh, I went uh, just the very quick story of, of uh, that background. I grew up in Southern California in a pretty wealthy uh, uh, neighborhood, a town called San Marino. Uh, and my father uh, was a uh, sort of a self-made man, uh, had his own company. He picked up from Missouri with three children. I'm the fourth. Uh, started a business in California as a food broker and uh, uh was great. He had me, like we had the fourth kid, me, uh, afterwards. So I'm the only one born in California. Mm -hmm. Uh, but he, um, lost everything my freshman year in college. So, so here I am at UCLA playing ball and, uh, and everything's cut out from me. So I was really in a position where I had to make some life decisions. I made the life decision to stop playing ball and transfer schools, transferred up to Cal Poly, San Luis Obispo in the central coast of California. And that's where I got my degree in agribusiness. I went from political theory and baseball uh, at UCLA to, uh, to, Cal, to Cal Poly and agribusiness. All right. And then uh, did you intern at, in one of the wineries then as, you know, as just during college or right after? I did. Um, and uh, so I was, I, because my father lost everything, I had to wait tables five nights a week to put myself through college. You guys can't see me right now, but I, I am of an age where it was a lot cheaper to go to college back in those days. <laughs> and then you can actually put yourself through school. So I waited tables five nights a week. Uh, but I, uh, a couple of things you learn. Uh, if you're a waiter and you can sell wine, you double your tips pretty fast. Uh, so that became a, an important thing for me to be a little bit more involved with wine from that standpoint. And then on the weekends, I uh, met a, an assistant winemaker at a winery and he said, come on in on the weekends, drag some hoses around. I'll teach you how to clean barrels. And, uh, and uh, so I worked for free to uh, you know, cut my teeth on uh, uh, the winemaking side of things uh, during my, on the weekends during my college years. Oh, very good. Well, I, I wanna share the uh, floor here. So let me ask Jeff to join us. <laughs> sure, thanks, Anne. And, and thanks again, Judd, for, for joining us here today. Um, I, you know, I wonder, I, I know, you know, I think in the part of the story we kind of, or I pick up here, um, you've, you've transferred schools, you, you've gotten a degree in, in agribusiness. At, at that point, if you're able to kind of rewind, um, what were you envisioning for yourself in, in terms of a career? Right. I had a loose plan. Loose would be the operative word. Uh, the loose plan was really to walk a mile in the shoes of everybody that touched wine. So uh, I set out on a kind of a career path. And again, loose would be the operative term where I was a retailer, a restaurateur. I was a wine broker, a sales rep on 100% commission. Uh, I was making home wine on the side. I was trying to do everything that I could to touch uh, anything with wine and what people would enjoy with wine so that ultimately I could come up to wine country and Napa Valley really is the center of the universe for wine in America and, and run wineries experientially rather than just uh, theoretically. Uh, and, uh, and, and that was sort of the career path I did. I will um, add to that a little bit. One of the things that I learned about the wine industry in that in about, there was about nine years of doing this was that we were very good at, in the production side of it, the crafting of wine, and then, it, then kind of pushing it out uh, into the market through the sales side. What was really missing here uh, was the pull equation, the marketing side of things. And nobody in the wine industry was really, frankly, any good at it. 
So I knew that I wasn't going to get that training from the wine industry. So that's when I decided to leave the wine industry uh, to work for a, a large consumer packaged goods company of some kind, you know, Procter and Gamble or whatever it happens to be. Uh, learned that I needed my master's to do that. So I went back, got my master's in international business. And uh, then I went to work for Nestle. And uh, Nestle is uh, clearly a, a, a global, it's the largest food company in the world. So it's it, it quite a good great company. It is global. It is food, which was still part of my MO. Uh, but ultimately, they owned a company at the time called Wine World, uh, which was uh, and owned a, a, a several wineries. And it was it was one of the six operating divisions in America for Nestle. So my thought was, this is awesome. I'll get this CPG background with Nestle, and then I'll take it up and I'll take over Wine World. And that was sort of the action plan. That's where it got derailed a little bit from there. <laughs> Yeah, and and Judd, I wonder. Thanks, thanks for kind of walking us through there. Um, you know, and I, I love the, I love that you're building this, you know, loose but deliberate educational plan where where you're really seeing the the whole chain uh, in, in terms of the wine industry. Do do you remember what what were some of the surprises that that jumped out at you as you as you really did walk a mile in the shoes of a, a restaurateur or um, one of the other elements of the chain? Yeah, I think the uh, the biggest surprise is that um, most in, in almost every one of those steps along the way, uh, there was somebody better than me doing it, <laughs> and uh, and and maybe somebody who was more qualified to do it. And particularly when it comes to sales. Now, I, I will be honest with you, I, I enjoy um, selling wine because I love talking about it and I love talking to people about it. Um, but uh, when you're selling wine to a consumer, somebody who wants to buy from you, and when you're trying to sell wine to a retailer or a restaurateur who maybe doesn't want to buy from you, mm -hmm. a, you learn a lot. <laughs> and uh, so I, I think the big thing that I learned in, in all of those steps was that there were people who are far better than me at those jobs, which is great. What I wanted to do was ultimately hire them uh, so that I could have a, a great a great company. I wanted to hire people better than me. That was the that was the the, the epiphany. Yeah, and and when you think about any of the links in that chain, um, did you find that people who were in one of the links had an understanding or appreciation of what came before or what came after? Uh, for me personally, you mean? Uh, uh, I I mean more like the norm in the industry. I imagine for you as you walk through it, you're able to build a more macro understanding. I'm, I'm right. wondering kind of more what the norm is, is, is expertise in, in one of the spots, you know, you, you've talked about that deep expertise. Yeah. Um, is that informed by awareness of the whole chain or is it about getting really good at, at one particular thing? Yeah, I think along the path, I think those people that were really good at it were pretty much in their silo of what they did well. Uh, so they were they they had an awareness of maybe the entire package, but they were deeply involved with really their area of expertise. Uh, and I was really, I think, um, destined to be more of that generalist. Got it. Got it. That's helpful. And why don't I hand this back to you? Oh, thank you, Jeff. How about before uh, we hand the baton to Mike, let me remind listeners that you are listening to Leadership in Action and Jeff Klein, Mike Yuseem, and I, Ann Greenhall, have the pleasure of speaking with Judd Wallenbrock, President and CEO of C. Mondavi and Family. Mike, let's get you into the conversation. 
Well, Judd, it's great to have you here on the program. And I'm reminded of a person from what you said at the outset who was on our show a couple of years ago who was total entry level when he began. He joined as a salesperson, nobody under him, and today he's the chief executive of a large of that firm, a very large firm. He's always said that that has enabled him to, in the back of his mind, envisage what a salesperson does, what a person in marketing does, uh, what the head of one of the um, operating units does. And I think I hear that in what you've said, too. It was really helpful to drag those hoses around and then in, in kind of experience everything else in between that and serving as the uh, the top dog. So what's your thought on that one? I think you're exactly right, Mike. I, it is, it's about learning empathy uh, and, uh, and having an understanding of what's going on. Uh, if, if, if you really haven't experienced it, it's hard to imagine what the day-to-day -day life is of a sales rep or of a winemaker or of a, a you know, a finance person within the wine industry or a, or a vineyard worker. You really need to uh, have that empathy to see um, what their life is like. And then um, hopefully as the leader of the company, develop a culture that allows everybody to appreciate what everybody else does. Uh, and, uh, and, and I think that's kind of um, exactly the, the person you were addressing before, I think, is exactly right. Uh, it's, uh, there's no substitute for experience. And then, John, a second quick follow-on is this. As you became great at uh, hose hauling and late, later maybe accounting and finance and marketing, how did you help people above you appreciate that you were to take the next, you were re really ready and eager to take the next step up? into an area that you weren't necessarily an expert in, but of course, no better way to become an expert than to take on an area. So the question is, how did you let your bosses know uh, you were obviously good at what you were doing, but you were ready to take on something more? Uh, you know, that is an excellent question, Mike, and I have actually thought about that in the past. And, and I was, in fact, I was just reflecting that with my wife the other night. Um, you know, one of the things that I, I realize in the, in, in the various steps that I've had in my career is that you can identify what the strengths and the weaknesses are of your coworkers and also of your superiors. And uh, what, whatever the situation is, uh, you want to be able to complement that uh, and, mm -hmm. and maybe fill in some loose, uh, some holes. Um, and, uh, and I think that also might be part of my baseball background as a part of a team, you know, that if somebody falls in another place, you want to be able to help pick them up and, 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 and maybe even replace them. So temporarily, um, in every situation I've learned that there are some shortcomings, uh, that need to be, uh, filled. And, and I've always made myself uh, jump into that position to, to fill that role. Example, my, I had a boss at, uh, at uh, Nestle who was not a very good, um, he wasn't very good with numbers. He wasn't a very good financial guy, great sales kind of guy. And so I leapt into the numbers and made him look really, really good with the numbers. Uh, that's just a great example of, of sort of how you can compliment people and, and that really raises, elevates your position within their eyes. Hey, Judd, I've got a quick follow-on, and i got to be brief because um, we're coming to a station break, so to speak. On the way through and up these various roles you've played, what was the most difficult upward step to take along the way? 
<laughs> you know, I think uh, the, the biggest upward break for me really was going from really, I was just a sales rep and I was a retailer and a restaurateur. Uh, it was making the quantum leap to work for Nestle and getting into that uh, true classic package get brand thing. It was, a, it was a quantum leap in, in income, but it was also a quantum leap in responsibility and professionalism. Great. Mike, I might just pick up the baton there and just uh, and just uh, tell everyone that, again, you're listening to Leadership in Action. I'm Ann Greenhall, and we are speaking with Judd Wallenbrock, President and CEO of C. Mondavi and Family. Uh, Judd, I might follow Mike's uh, line of questioning and just ask you, probe a little bit, how did you persuade Nestle to take you on and, and make that quantum leap? Um. Yeah, it's a, a good, another good question. So Nestle was one of those companies that, uh, so I went to Thunderbird uh, International Business School in Arizona. I think it's called the Warden of uh, the Desert. I'm not really sure. Uh, we're we're the it. Thunderbird of Arizona. <laughs> but uh, it's one of those uh, graduate schools. You didn't start, you didn't have to start at, at a, like in the fall. You could start any quarter, any semester. And as a result, you could be out of sequence. And when you were out of sequence, I was out of sequence. That also meant that the hiring sequences of these corporations was out of sequence. So I came into the, the job uh, market out of sequence when everybody else was being hired. So Destiny had already done all their hiring is basically what I'm telling you. Yeah. Uh, and I was relentless. I basically wouldn't say, I wouldn't let them uh, turn me down. And I, and I basically, I took a, a, a role in the company that uh, was uh, maybe not what I was planning on getting into, but I wanted to get into it and showed them exactly what I, I got involved with logistics, frankly. Hmm. Uh, and that uh, worked me into the role of uh, the brand management structure that they had, which was a cycle, but it took me a, a, a year to get into that uh, by, by, by basically you know, saying, I'll do whatever it takes to prove to you I can do what, I, what, what you want. And you had a good sense that that step was critical to your future career plans. Like, were you looking so far ahead that you were thinking, you know what, someday I want to run a, a wine company? Let's go with that, Ann. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> no, I, I, to, you know, the truth is, uh, loosely, again, yes, I did. Yeah. And I knew uh, very much that uh, again, remember I was talking about filling roles that were needed. The wine industry needed people who understood marketing. Mm -hmm. They needed to understand the demand equation. You have to understand that the wine industry is, is polluted with brands. You guys go to the store and tell me how many other categories in the, in the grocery store have as many SKUs or many as offerings as wine. Nothing, not even close, not even remotely close. Yeah. And, uh, and so it's, uh, you're, you're really in a polluted uh, market. How do you stand out? Well, that's going to take marketing. It's going to take a, a, a pull mechanism to do that. And uh, so I knew it was, I knew from my standpoint, it was critical to get that background so that I could return to the wine industry with something unique and saleable. Well, maybe I'll, I'll just kind of pick up this um, last comment that you've made, Jed, about the, the complexity of the industry and and the, the number of discrete products. Um, why did a, why did wine evolve like that? Um, it's a, I'm sure this is a very subjective uh, answer on this, but I will tell you, and again, remember I'm in the wine industry and I'm passionate about wine. Mm -hmm. uh, wine is art. Um, 
wine is like a, uh, it's like a painting. It's like, it's like writing a book. It's like creating a film. Uh, there's no shortage of any of those. Right. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and, 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 and it's, and frankly, it's easy entry. Uh, doesn't, does, you know, I, you can make wine in your backyard, by the way, my house in Napa is a, is a bonded winery. So <laughs> it's very easy entry. Uh, there's very few barriers to this industry. There are some legal barriers when you want to go selling wines across state lines and things like that. But my license cost me $800. Really? That's not a barrier. And uh, now all I needed to do was make wine and sell it. Well, that's the tough part. <laughs> so that's, yeah, I think that's probably the, the key. Yeah, I, I appreciate that, Jed. I, um, so I, I grew up uh, about an hour north of Philadelphia in Allentown, Pennsylvania. And one of my best friends in high school, Ben Landis, his family owned a very small vineyard in Brinigsville, Pennsylvania. Uh, and so a couple times a year, I would get the call to come over and, and pick grapes for the wine harvest. So as you're, as you're just saying, there are not a lot of barriers to entry. Um, it, it's bringing me back to, you know, the, the two or three acres of, uh, of vineyard at, at Vinecrest Winery that I used to work at in the summers. That's great. But you obviously didn't get bit by the bug. <laughs> uh, I, well, it depends which way the, the bug bites you. I drink a lot of wine. Does that count? Perfect. <laughs> that counts. Let me, let me get your name and credit card later on, okay? All right. That's a deal. That's a deal. That's a deal. Learn something about sales in that uh, walk through the industry. All right. And back to you. Well, I'll just, I'll just uh, relay a memory also. Uh, I grew up in New York State, and my father, who uh, was an artist, decided that he wanted to um, make wine. So he created an arbor. We got some grapes and my childhood memory is stomping on on grapes <laughs> and turning purple to help my father try some batches of wine they were not very they were not terribly good as i recall but then again as i, I was a child and may not have had a taste for wine the way that i the way that i do appreciate it appreciate it now Visions so of lucille ball right <laughs> yes exactly so and maybe man. one Yes. And for some reason, you know, the Landis family was probably smarter than I realized. They never let me get, they never let my feet get near those grapes. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> All right. Well, you have talked about being a role player and I don't think that we asked you or I asked you what, what position did you play in when you were playing baseball? Uh, yeah, I was a shortstop. Uh, so, uh, yeah, so a shortstop, if you're, if, if you're a baseball fan is, uh, sort of the leader of the infield, uh, really sort of, uh, calling the shots and, and making sure everybody's, uh, uh, aware of what the situation is and what the next steps are. Uh, and, uh, yeah, pretty, uh, uh, I, 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 I loved baseball. I still do, frankly. It's just that yeah. now I'm 63, it's a little harder to play. <laughs> yeah, but do you, do you see connections then? I in your response, I think you do. Yeah, and I you know it's very cliche to have sports analogies, uh, <laughs> but the but the reality is sports are mirrors of life, and and <laughs> and they do uh, reflect a, a great deal uh, on uh, my my professional business uh, background. <laughs> um, I'll just tell you my my executive vice president of sales was a four-year starter in football at Ohio State and the captain of the football team. 
Um, when you play a, a division one level and a high level uh, ball, he also played a couple of years of pro ball. Uh, what you learn is not about winning and losing. It's it's about uh, the discipline of mm -hmm. your 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 profession and your sport. It's it's not about beating somebody else. It's how you win. It's the quality of the of the play and the quality of the winning. But make no mistake about it. You also learn how to win, and that's an important thing. Oh, so good. Well, I will share with you. I hope it's okay. The only other representative of the wine industry that we have had on our show. Mike and Jeff may recall, uh, was Drew Bledsoe, <laughs> who is now the uh, CEO and owner of Doubleback, if I'm remembering correctly. And for listeners who know, he was the he was the quarterback replaced by Tom Brady. Do I have that right? <laughs> Dead on. Uh, you have nearly 40 years of experience in the wine industry, but from our conversation so far, I'm sensing that you are not the typical CEO, and the one word that keeps coming up is loose. <laughs> so um, can you say a little bit more about how being loose has served you well? Well, you know, this actually ties back a little bit to um, the sports analogy we were talking about um, Think of about uh, any sport that you might play. If you're, you know, if you're a golfer, if you're a tennis player or anything like that, if you are playing tight, you're gonna get injured, right? Uh, so what do you do? You stretch, you play loose, you have to play loose. You have to be loosened up and, and, and which, which makes you nimble, makes you more available to move where you need to move and be more flexible. Let's just, let's face it, business is not rigid. It has to be flexible you have to be nimble. You have to be able to, to react and be, uh, um, uh, you have a plan, of course, but the plan always changes, right? And uh, I think that's sort of my mantra on that is let's let's play loose. The other thing is, is that remember that I'm in the wine industry. Uh, if I'm not having fun in this industry, I need to I need to go to a shrink. Uh, <laughs> I'm not, I'm, we're not we're not, you know, producing nuclear warheads and, yeah. you know, or whatever. This is a really, you know, I listened to you guys before you had your stories immediately what happens with the wine industry is that people have a story yeah and uh, and it's called you know we call it the social lubricant right uh, it the second you have either a glass of wine you start talking or if you know people in the wine you start telling your stories about wine it's it's a very social beverage yeah so good and so on that notion of loose and flexibility and agility i'm imagining that you have had to draw on on that quality this year, the year of the pandemic. So I'm just wondering if you would talk about uh, your experience during this year. Yeah, it's, um, uh, I wish I could tell you that this is a, a unique year. Of course, it's a unique year with the pandemic. Mm -hmm. uh, and in 2020, we had fires, but the reality is, is that my industry uh, is, it's, you know, it's 8,000 years old. It's seen its share of uh, challenges. Um, Let's face it, in, in 2000 and, uh, 2019, in 1920, for 13 years, we were in prohibition. I mean, if that's not a challenge where it was illegal to have alcohol, <laughs> that is, uh, that's pretty challenging, right? So we've seen world wars, we've seen economic disasters, we've seen uh, uh, earthquakes, uh, we've seen uh, you know, uh, fires. There's really, realistically, in the, in the wine country, from 2016 all the way through last year, each year there's been some level of, uh, of fires that have been addressed. 
So the reality is, is that we're a little bit used to it. And, and, and what we've done with that is recognize a couple things. One is the, the challenge is for the humans. Um, it's not necessarily a challenge for the vines. The vines don't know that there's a pandemic. The vines don't know that there's a fire going on. So life goes on when it comes to the production, the agricultural part of it. But uh, when it comes to the human side of it and the business side of it, that's really critical from my standpoint. For, so the very first thing we, we really did, as, and as the CEO of the company, my priority is the safety of my staff. And so we have a telephone tree concept down where my senior management, there's, there's six in my management team, uh, immediately uh, contact all of their uh, management underneath them. And their job is to immediately contact everybody that works for them so that we know within a very short period of time, whether or not we have people at risk or not. Now, fortunately in 2020, we did not have anybody at risk. We had some issues with people being able to get to work because the roads were on fire. Oh, <laughs> but but uh, that was it. And uh, so um, that was the good news. So immediately uh, we, we took a, that, that opportunity. I told you the wine industry is very social. Um, it's also very much a community. So when uh, our property is a historic property in St. Helena, it's the oldest winery in Napa Valley, by the way. And it's also a family owned by the Mandavi family. We're not corporately owned, it's family owned. And it's a, we're now actually have our fifth generation of Mandavis. This is the first family of American wine, right? These are, this is, an honor to work with these people. Uh, at any rate, that property is a beautiful property. And the day after we figured out that all of our people were safe, we immediately started to look to see, well, what about our community? Who else needs help? And, uh, and then that prompted a day later, we ended up uh, donating, we have a 11 acres of fallow property there. And we uh, contacted PG&E who was there to restore en uh, energy and uh, services to all of these places that had been blacked out or burned out by the fires. And we became the base camp. Uh, and for the next month, we were the base camp for, uh, for PG&E, which served to be, because we were right on the front lines of the fires, and, uh, but we were safe. So we, we really, um, we felt very proud that we could help the community uh, as much as, as we possibly could. And then, and to take it one step further, We've been through a pandemic, right? So restaurants are closed. There's people going out of business. Uh, well, PG&E had 600 uh, employees and, and service people that are coming through per day who needed to be fed. So we connected PG&E with the local restaurants and the local restaurants ended up becoming the caterers for PG&E, which stimulated the economy of our local restaurateurs and helping our community. Very good, Judd. You know, uh, last time I went around right to Jeff and then Mike, this time I'm going to the left. Mike and then Jeff. So, Mike, over to you. I guess this is a counterclockwise or something. That's right. Okay. And thank you. Uh, Judge, just to stay on that topic in one particular way, uh, as you alluded to at the outset, you've been through a lot between the fires and uh, COVID-19. And I'm sure that from the earlier fire experiences that go back some years, you had some thinking that then carried into how you responded to the coronavirus so if you could just pick up a thread there, what, what did you know from earlier setbacks that proved vital for getting through COVID-19? Yeah, Mike, um, that's 
exactly what did uh, teach me a lot of different things. I'll go back to 2014 when we had a, a, a pretty devastating earthquake in Napa. And uh, one of the things that you learn is you want to control the story. There are a lot of people who wanted to tell a story of doom and gloom. Oh, we lost this. We had lost that. I'm exactly the opposite. I'm the type of person that says, look, no, we're going we're gonna to rebound very, very fast. Come visit us. Don't stay away. That's what's going to stimulate the economy. When it came to the pandemic and the fires, it was sort of the same type of thing. Um, the, the one thing that I, particularly when it came to the pandemic, so March 15th, a year ago, uh, uh, the state of California shut down and said we couldn't have tastings in our tasting room, we couldn't do this, we couldn't do that. Uh, it became very clear to me that most of my uh, other wineries, and, and we'll call them competitors, even though we're all very friendly, they were probably going to sit back and wait to see what happened. And uh, my team took the opposite. We recognized that this was going to be an opportunity to take market share, to be on the forefront of being very assertive about where we're going in the business. Let's uh, recognize where the business was going to go. Clearly, restaurants were shut down, and clearly, retail places were going to be the, the hub for uh, all their needs. So we immediately took that opportunity to reinforce our and establish our presence there. And uh, and, and quite honestly, that 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 strat you know that strategic direction proved to be quite um, lucrative for us. Not lucrative. We nobody made money, but but it was definitely. Um, Let's put it this way, we didn't lose share when everybody else did. <laughs> That's great. Uh, just a quick follow on on that one in particular. I think we all know the phrase enterprise risk management. We didn't have much around 20 years ago. Today, every enterprise has got some kind of ERM, enterprise risk management program. In your own, own case, having learned from the fires and now from the pandemic, what are a couple of your working principles to ensure whatever's next, who knows what's going to happen next five or 10 years, you're going to be more ready to manage your way through? Yeah, I'll say it in, in, in one word, uh, diversification. Uh, and, and so uh, it's, there may be some tactical things that you're talking about, when it, but strategically, it's from a company standpoint. You know, what did we learn from all of this? Well, we learned that uh, uh, we better have a rainy day fund. Uh, if, if, you've, if you're completely strapped out and you don't have any cash and you don't have a line of credit, uh, you're, you're toast. So uh, make sure that you have a rainy day fund of some kind. You, you, and, and, be, and it's just like your home savings, right? You better have six months of, of savings in case you get laid off, right? Uh, you know, so that's the same type of thing. Um, the second part of that is that you, you darn well better not be um, beholden to one channel or to one product. Uh, so if I was a wine company that had a very high end, you know, $200 bottle of Cabernet that I only sold in restaurants, where would I be right now? You know, I, I, I don't have restaurants to sell to <laughs> and I've got inventory building. So diversification is the key word behind that. And it's diversification of your product line, diversification of your geographic uh, sourcing and, and, and diversification of the, of your channel of sale. So in our particular case, you know, again, we for, fortunately we had a good footprint in in the wholesale arena. In other words, the restaurants and retailers and hotels and things like that. Uh, but our direct to consumer, our tasting room was shut down. So uh, what do we do? Well, we took the winery to the people. 
We started doing Zoom tastings. We started doing all sorts of different activities that were engaging people in their homes uh, as opposed to uh, waiting for them to show up at a winery that's closed. All right, Judd, very helpful. And Anne, I hope our listeners are writing down those two points. Yes, I know. Uh, I'm going to just remind everyone that this is Leadership in Action on Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 132. You just heard Mike. You're going to hear Jeff. I'm Anne. And today our guest is Judd Wallenbrock, President and CEO of C. Mondavi and Company and Family. Forgive me, C. Mondavi and Family. Jeff, over to you. Thanks, Anne. Um, and Judd, I'd, I'd like you to I'd like to ask you a question that we we've asked over time to uh, a, a lot of sitting chief executive officers. Um, and, and I know on on your uh, pathway to to being the president and CEO of, of Simon Dhabi, you served as an executive um, for a, a number of vineyards and brands. Um, as, as you stepped into you know your first CEO role, as you've continued as a CEO, um, what's different about being the CEO? versus being an executive within the C-suite? How, how, do, how do things change if, if they do at all? Uh, that's another excellent question, Jeff, because there are a couple of different uh, answers to that. One is that um, clearly the buck stops here. You know, there, there, you have to take on that responsibility and you've got to want to have that responsibility. Again, I'll go back to the analogy playing shortstop. Mm-hmm. I wanted the ball hit to me. You know, if it was the bottom of the ninth and, and there was two outs, hit it to me. I'm going to make the play. And, uh, and, and so you, you have to have a, a, a characteristic in your personality that um, embraces that. The other part of it, and maybe the bigger surprise to me, was that uh, by being the CEO, sometimes people don't tell you stuff. <laughs> and, they, and they don't want you around because they feel like it stifles maybe some of the other staff from speaking out. And, and, and at first that was uh, frankly um, disconcerting. And, and now I, compl- I actually completely understand it because then you, again, empathy, empathy you kind of look back on yourself and you go, oh yeah, I, you know what? I wouldn't speak up if the, if the president was there, the CEO was there or, or, the, or the family was there. It, was, it just, uh, it, you, you felt like it wasn't appropriate. Yeah. I understand it now, you know? And, and, so, Judd, let me ask you then: When, um, with that realization, what is it that you do, either from a, a structure perspective or a, a process and relationship perspective, to make sure that you do have ac- access to accurate and timely information, and and right. the bad news, right? Which right, is, exactly. It's often hardest to deliver. Well, let's let's start with not micromanaging. Uh, that's one thing. But the other part of it is is absolutely having a team of, uh, so I have an executive leadership team yep. that is all the major disciplines of the company and we are a team. We are the core uh, and we uh, implicitly trust each other uh, and, uh, and, and, and frankly, unconditionally love each other. And uh, that is, um, they are my work family uh, without a doubt. And, uh, and I'm not sure that that's, um, a common thing, but it's a very critical thing. And that's the sign of the leader of the company to create a company that has that trust uh, so that, yes, uh, mm-hmm. maybe my, my COO has got uh, some uh, issues with, let's say, the winemaker and the winemakers doesn't want to talk about things in front of me or whatever it is. 
we can now digest it as a team and figure out the best course of action. I, I'm going to make a really terrible analogy to you guys. Uh, <laughs> if you guys were uh, Star Trek fans. Yeah, sure. <laughs> there's Star Trek, the original, and then there's, uh, then there's the next generation. And what you've got is you've got, you've got Jim Kirk and you've got Luke Picard. Mm-hmm. And Jim Kirk is damn the to- torpedoes. I'm going to make the decision and you're going to follow me. And Luke Picard is team, let's get together. How do we address the situation and move forward from there? I, I would say I'm Luke Picard, but we'll still make it so. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad you added that because it took the challenge away from me of figuring out how to weave make it so into my next question. There you um, go. <laughs> I, I do appreciate that. Um, and, and if uh, Anne will indulge me, I'll, sure. I'll, I'll ask you one more here. Um, so you, you mentioned, you know, that your executive team is your work family. Um, and, and since you've used the word family and, and we've We've talked about the Mandabi family re- really being the first family of wine here in the United States. Um, what is it like to work in a fifth generation family business? Um, and, and again, maybe what, what surprised you along the way as compared to uh, some of your more traditional roles? So I've said this uh, many times, and, and uh, this is going to sound. Uh, I'm going to make sure that this doesn't come across sounding uh, too weird. Uh, but there, in, within the wine industry, and I think within any company, really uh, company, there there's sort of three options that you have. You can have your own company. You can create your own company and be your own boss, yep. which I which I've done. I had my own winery for about 15 years. Um, you can work for some soulless corporate entity. <laughs> that one sounds good uh, (laughs) or and this is the part that's going to sound I hopefully you take this you understand the joke behind this or you can work for some dysfunctional family (laughs) and I choose to put the fun back in family dysfunction and and when I say family dysfunction I really don't mean that as in a negative way because let's you know look around this the zoom call every one of our families has some level of dysfunction <laughs> we just may not air it you know and uh, um, and what I will say about family-owned companies and the reason I'm I'm so attracted to them is uh, because of the passion behind it the reason these people are there is not because uh, they're being forced to they're there because they want to and they love it and and love and passion uh, can be quite mercurial uh, right, um, but but it's also uh, real, and I and I think that that's a a, a great thing. I also, um, if you don't know the history of the Mandavi family, uh, C Mandavi stands for Cesare Mandavi, and Cesare and Rosa Mandavi were the original Mandavis from Italy, and their two they had four kids, two daughters, Helen and Mary, but their two sons were Robert Mandavi, the fam- the famous name Robert Mandavi, and Peter Mandavi, and in 1943 they purchased Charles Krug. And Robert and Peter ran it together for years. And if you don't know the story, in 1965, historically uh, and, and notoriously, they had a fight, literally a fight. And, and Robert left the company and moved down the road and started Robert Mandavi Winery. Uh, this, is the, this is the original Mandavi family, the Peter Mandavi side of it, that is the C. Mandavi and Charles Krug, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and I worked for Robert Mandavi from 92 to 01. So I've now had this uh, incredible... Uh, history where I've worked for both sides of this family, and uh, and and interestingly enough, if you don't know this, Robert Mandavi sold to one of those large corporations 
uh, in 2004. So there's no Mandavis at the place that says Robert Mandavi. And there's five generations of Mandavis at the place Charles Krug that doesn't say Mandavi on it. So if that's, if that's clear, you know, you guys are a Wharton, you get it. You're smart. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, We'll let Anne sort this all out now. Oh, I love that. Oh, I love the choices. You can run a company, on, run it on your own. You can work for a soulless corporation, or you can add the fun to a dysfunctional family. How about on that note, we have just a few minutes left. How about, Judd, if we look forward to the future? You know, what, what, what I don't want you to have to spill the whole vision for the company here, but just what are your hopes for the upcoming five, maybe 10 years? Yeah, well, I will give you uh, an insight to, 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 to get to those five or 10 years, you better have a much longer term vision behind that. And the reality is, is my job is to create a sustainable business model that will last for generations of Mandavis. Um, you guys know, as well as anybody else, the fact that, we, that, that we're in you know, four adult generations and the, and the fifth generation was just born, the success rate behind that is nil. It's 2% right. it's, it's, it's at best, right? Uh, so the fact that we've actually uh, established a, a, a company that has lasted for multiple years, multiple generations of family is critical. And it is uh, a, a very much a galvanizing message of, of the families. They want to be family owned forever. So in order to do that, and as the CEO, I really wanted to look for a model out there and how many models exist. Well, in the United States, uh, none, I mean, very few. So we, we turn to Europe and I will tell you that there's a great model that we use in our company uh, and it's the Antonori family of Italy. Uh, the Antonori is a famous uh, wine uh, family and the Antonoris are in their 26th generation of Antonoris and the CEO of the company is a woman with the last name Antonori. So if ever there was a model to aspire to, this is, this is the organization and I've, and I've sort of used that as that galvanizing message for our company as well. Ultimately, what the what the what the vision is is to be one of the world's great estates in the company of the of the world's finest. And, and Antonori is one of the models that we use. Now, what do we need to do five years from now, 10 years from now to achieve that? And uh, and that's and that's where we're at. It's all about sustainability uh, of the business. And in order for that to happen, we talked a little bit about it, about the fires diversification of the company, making sure that you've always got, um, that cash is king. We've got to make sure that, we've, that we lower our debt, that we get our cash in line and that we have uh, not all of our eggs in one basket, that we diversify out and, and have uh, multiple options for uh, revenue streams. Very good, thank you. Mike, how about um, you have the last question here and then we'll do what we customarily do. We'll have a little time for our after action review and we'll ask Judd to join us. Uh, Judd, a very a brief uh, a concluding question here. If we just take your own history back, let's make it 20 years uh, or speaking to people who are 20 years your junior and maybe a better way to put it, what advice would you have for them not necessarily to, to pursue your particular career, but to make a difference in the world in the way you have? What advice would you have? Um, I think uh, uh, that probably the, uh, um, boy, there's a lot of words of uh, advice that I would have, but I, I think the most important thing that people can have is empathy for other people. Hmm. Uh, and, and, and to understand that uh, the world doesn't revolve around you, 
is is a very important lesson to learn that that honestly not a whole lot of people learn and and i will tell you that i th i think that um, everybody is going to get to that point in some way it, that's that's appropriate for them one of the ways that i did it myself was I, I actually created a winery where I made the wine, I sold it, and I gave all of my profits to charity. I wanted to give back and help communities, but I'm in the wine industry, so I don't make any money. <laughs> if you don't make any money uh, and you want to do good, you volunteer. And I found out I wasn't very good at volunteering. So I created a brand so I could create a revenue stream so I could give it away to help others. But, if, but, I, but I highly recommend that everybody do some kind of, of charitable work uh, and, and, and walk a mile in the shoes of somebody else. I think it's very, very important. Very good. Thank you. Well, we have about one minute for our after action review. And so I'm just gonna ask uh, maybe Mike real quick, what takeaway do you have from our conversation? We've got a new metric or benchmark for sustainable advantage, not just for 20 months, but how about more than 20 generations? Hey, I love it. All right, Jeff, how about you? Loose planning uh, allows for adaptability and still achieving our goals. Very good. All right. I'm going to add one. And then Jeff, you get you, uh, Judd, excuse me, you get a word in here. I'm going to add empathy. You know, just having the compassion and the imagination to walk in someone else's shoes will help you no matter where you are in the hierarchy and we'll help you all the way to CEO. So Judd, how about you? Yeah, I think um, uh, kind of tying many of these things together is, uh, is, is, is finding what a way to connect with people, connect with everybody. Connections are very, very important. Um, let me give you an example if I can mm -hmm. take a few seconds sure. talking about this. I, um, when I came on board, of course, nobody knew me. Uh, we have maybe a hundred people, you know, working, you know, in the area of 80 some odd people working here. We have these divisions, departments, and they range from everything from, um, you know, working on a bottling line to selling wine to whatever, winemaking, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I created these things called uh, a cup of Joe with Judd. And, uh, and what I do is I go into the departments and we'd have a topic. And the very first topic uh, I had was, uh, what's your terroir? So remember, terroir is a very much a wine term, which is the wine tastes like the place because of the soil and the climate and everything like that. Um, I tell the story that I was born in 1957. The, there was more people born in 1957 in the United States than any other year uh, there is, and um, and which just means there's a lot of me out there, right? And uh, and and I'd sit down with these 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 people. And I tell them, look, I grew up in Southern California, surfing, playing baseball. It, 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 it crafted how I dress, how I talk, how I think, everything. And, uh, and at the exact same minute of time in 1957, on October 26th, there was some guy born in Queens who talks with a little different accent. He maybe dresses black, got a lot of chains on, you know, whatever. <laughs> He's got a different flavor, right? He's got right. his terroir. And I'm going to jump right in there, Judd, on that word terroir, because we have to close the show. I want to thank you so much for joining us. And thank you, listeners, for being here with us on Leadership in Action, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Again, special thank you to our guest, Judd Wallenbrook, 
and to our sound engineer, Chris Tooks, and to Patty Hall, I'm Ann Greenhall. You've been listening to Leadership in Action on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 